Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Well, the Psalms are ancient poetic expressions of the human experience. Uh, And because they are an articulation of life in all of its seasons, uh, the Psalms then help us to engage with God in helpful and meaningful ways during all of those seasons. Uh, So with this in mind, we spend time each summer uh, turning our attention to these poems. Uh, We seek, in other words, to enter their world, to listen to what they have to say so that we might hear the voice of God in them. Uh, The Psalms are interesting because on one hand, they are an expression of human experience. Uh, You read them and there are Psalms of of celebration and joy. There are Psalms of confusion and chaos, of disappointment with God. Uh, They run the whole gamut. And so they articulate the human experience. Uh, And it's really great to listen in on the experiences of of other people. Uh, I appreciated what Taylor had to say last week uh, in talking about the chaos of the nations. Uh, She said, you know, we're not the first to experience chaos in the nations or in the world. Uh, And so when we read these expressions of of human experience, we we recognize we're not the first. Uh, But what we also hear in the Psalms is the voice of God calling back and speaking back to us. And so while the Psalms are an articulation and and are poetic articulation of the human experience, they are also a conversation of how God speaks to us as well. Uh, this summer, we're looking at Psalm 1 through 6, and uh, that took our creative team a long time to think about what psalms to cover. That was a joke. Very under the radar. That's okay. Uh, so today, being the third week of our series, we are in Psalm 3, uh, which I want to read to you uh, in its entirety. It'll also be up on the screen, so you can follow along there, uh, or you can follow along on your tablets, phones, or in your Bible. Uh, but Psalm 3 says this, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? And many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. For I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. And then I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. And so arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. And may your blessing be on your people. If you have your Bible or your electronic Bible in front of you, I want to call your attention to the heading Uh, just before verse 1 and right under the heading of Psalm 3. It it likely says this or or something like this. A psalm of David, indicating that King David wrote the psalm. And then it gives us context. Uh, When he fled from his son, Absalom. And so in the heading of the psalm, we are told the context and the circumstance that prompted this, this writing. It was written at a time when David was fleeing from his son, Absalom. Now, surely a psalm that begins with the words, Lord, how many are my foes, and is written while a man is fleeing from his very own son, surely piques our interest. 
So, just in case you thought the Bible was a book full of stories of really well-adjusted, socially responsible, and spiritually mature people, uh, listen to the story of King David's family. Uh, Fair warning, if this storyline were a movie, it would no doubt be rated R. So, here's a little bit of the further of the context. While living in Hebron, uh, David has six sons, all from different wives. Uh, These sons' names are Amnon, Daniel, Absalom, Adonijah, Shephatiah, and Ithriam. Now, I told you this sermon is already helpful, right? Look at all those names. So if someone looks at you weird because you've named your son Shephatiah, you can just look at them and say, it's a Bible name. So, but despite any laws against what we'll call special interactions between half-brothers and sisters, Amnon, the oldest, takes quite a liking to his half-sister named Tamar. In fact, his desire for her becomes overwhelming. And so one day he fakes being sick so that she will come to his room and take care of him. And while there, he proceeds to rape her and then has her expelled from the house. Uh, As you might imagine, this causes discord in the family. Tamar, though, has a full-blooded brother who is particularly upset about the incident. His name is Absalom, David's third son and Abnon's half-brother. So Absalom nurses a grudge against Amnon for two years. And then one night, he plans a feast for all of David's sons. And at the feast, Amnon drinks too much wine, gets drunk, which creates an opportunity for Absalom. So he has his servants kill his half-brother in order to avenge his sister's rape. Because revenge is a dish best served cold. Another joke, I know, very heavy stuff. Should not joke in the midst of it. That's okay. We'll make, we'll make our way through this. So after this whole thing, like everybody take a deep breath. It's okay. Now, Absalom, after all this goes down, Absalom disappears for three years until he is later welcomed back into the family and into the house of David. Absalom, though, starts desiring the power of the king, who happens to be his dad. And it's difficult to go to your dad and just say, hey, dad, I really want your job, so I'm going to have to kill you. That's a very difficult conversation to have. So instead, when people come to the king, David, with complaints and calls for justice, uh, but don't receive any help, Absalom goes to them and says, you know what? Your claims are good and right. And there is no one in the king's court to hear you. But... If I were the judge of the land, then all who had a suit or a cause, they would be able to come to me, and I would give them the justice they deserve. And then, as they would bow before him, he would then kiss their hand instead of them kissing his hand. Now, this, of course, gained him a huge following and favor with people all over the kingdom. And so after four years... After four years of sweet-talking people in the kingdom, I mean, Absalom is a guy of tremendous patience, right? Two years, then he avenges his sister's rape. And then after four years of gaining the the, uh, sweet-talking people to his side in the kingdom, he plans then a revolt against his father where he would kill his father and take over as king. Now, David gets wind of this and decides that he must flee from his third child. Uh, This is why Amy and I decided to stop at two. (laughs) So, hence, you have 
Psalm 3, a psalm of David where he fled from his son Absalom. And you thought the Bible was boring. (laughs) Now, I want to remind us that for this series, uh, we are given some framework of how to understand the Psalms. Uh, Psalms, generally speaking, fall into one of three categories. One is the category of orientation. These are the Psalms that present to us a world that is going well, in a world that makes sense and is predictable. Uh, Then there are Psalms of disorientation, where the world presented to us in the Psalm is a world where things are falling apart, it is chaotic and absolutely unpredictable. And then there are Psalms of new orientation, where the psalmist is presenting us with a world where we see new things and we realize God's propensity to make all things new and bring order out of chaos and light out of darkness. And so clearly, uh, this is a psalm of disorientation. I mean, David's own son is trying to kill him and take his throne. In other words, we aren't the first to experience family drama. (laughs) But we're also not the first to experience broken relationships or betrayal from those who are closest to us. Now, I cannot fully identify with David since neither Jaden or Autumn have started a revolt to kill me and replace me as pastor. Uh, Although they are very friendly to many of you, so I'm starting to be suspicious. But I do think that all of us know what it's like to feel betrayed or to have enemies or to feel like life is just out to get us. I mean, have you ever had seasons in your life where there's no one particular enemy? It's just like, just feels like life is out to get you. And what, what is offered to us in Psalm 3 in this poetic prayer from David while he's fleeing from his very own son Absalom, I think helps us to engage with God in times of uncertainty. And while I certainly don't do this very often, I do, as I was studying Psalm 3, I just couldn't help but realize that this is giving us a tremendous guide for how to pray and how to engage with God in times of disorientation in our life. And so I don't know where you're at. This may not resonate with you if you're not in a period of disorientation. Uh, But uh, as as you've probably heard many preachers or people say, if you're not in a season of chaos, get ready. One is right around the corner. Uh, And so if this doesn't resonate with you today, I just want you to put it in your pocket as a way of when chaos does come, here's a healthy way of how to engage with God in the midst of the chaos. Because I can tell you as a pastor, One of the things that I see is that as people uh, enter into circumstances uh, that are just chaotic in our life, uh, times of uncertainty, those are often the times where people lose faith. And they lose faith uh, because they they simply don't have a language or, or a way to engage with God in the midst of that chaos or uncertainty. And so I want to provide you today a a framework or a guide of how to engage with God in the midst of of tremendous difficulty, even if you're not in that that season or that period of your life right now. I do believe it's helpful for all of us uh, to get a handle on this and, and, and begin to understand it. And so we'll use the psalm as a framework for understanding how to pray in times of uncertainty. And so the psalm begins, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? And many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. In other words, David begins this prayer by naming the chaos in his life and being explicit about it. How many are my foes? How many rise up against me? And you'll notice that even though these are phrased as questions, they are not questions, but rather emphatic statements. 
David is saying, I have tons of enemies and all kinds of people are coming against me. And so I would encourage you that whatever it is that you have been through or are going through, it is okay to name that to God, to be explicit, to name your losses, and to face your pain. And, and I have found that this is tremendously helpful in, in, the, in the healing process is to take whatever the pain is in your life, whatever the chaos is, and give it to God and be explicit about it. Name your losses. Name the chaos. And I can tell you that for a while in the church, faith was, was framed as something that we possessed that made everything okay and made everything seem certain. And so when we encourage someone to have more faith, what we were actually saying is, dig in and be more certain about what you believe in the midst of chaos. What we were actually saying is, is, is dig in and, and just pretend that everything's going to be okay because God's going to make it okay. And that was how we talked about faith. Faith was a measure of certainty of belief and a measure of, of a, a smile on your face. And that was, a, for a while, that was the way that the church just talked about faith. And I'm really thankful that the people of God have begun to learn to see the faith, to see faith in a new light. Because faith is, is not about being so certain about what you believe in the midst of, of chaos or uncertainty, but rather it's, it's about searching in the midst of doubt. And, and faith is is not so much about pretending that everything is okay as much as it is facing the pain and being honest with God. I would love to see as a pastor people walking through times of chaos and uncertainty, not with, with all kinds of, of, of certain platitudes that they hold up, and, but, but rather with, with an honest searching in the midst of doubt. I would rather see people of faith learning to uh, engage with God, search with God, and, and, and be honest with God rather than just say, well, I have to be certain about everything all the time and pretend like everything is okay. I, I feel like faith is more about maintaining relationship with God in the midst of chaos. And that's precisely what David is doing in naming the pain and being explicit about it. Name the losses. Be explicit about the pain. Because in doing so, you are maintaining a relationship with God. And here's the deal. In the middle of the mess, the pain and the emotions that you feel may not all be true. In other words, they are probably exaggerated. And you may be in a place where you are not able to see the situation except from your own perspective and from the perspective of your own pain. But that's okay. You take that to God in prayer. Wherever you're at, you may not... See, one of the, one of the greatest challenges in the midst of difficulty in our lives and the challenges that we face, one of the biggest challenges is to be able to see a neutral perspective and see things as they really are, right? Things are too painful right in the middle of it. Things are too confusing right in the middle of it to see things with a clear view. And so your pain and the things that you're bringing to God probably are exaggerated and probably aren't exactly true to the situation. But don't feel like you have to get everything figured out before you can start taking stuff to God. Give God where you're at and name the pain that you feel. Name the losses that you are experiencing and that you feel in your life. Because guess what? Lamenting 
isn't about always having the right perspective or understanding the whole truth. But rather, lamenting is about naming your losses, calling out the pain, and giving it to God. See, this is, one of the, this is why the Psalms are a great gift to us, is because we can watch people in tremendous pain and confusion and disorientation. David is trying to be replaced by his own son, who has gathered favor in the kingdom and gathered now an entire army against his father. (laughs) This is a bad day. But David, rather than trying to say, oh, maybe Absalom, you know, this or that, or trying to see things in in, in terms of like motivation or perspective or, or any of that, he just gives God how he's feeling. Lord, I've got an enormous amount of foes. And everybody in my life is coming against me. Is everybody coming against him? No, but that's what it feels like. That's how it seems. He's, he's naming it explicitly, giving it to God, and that's true lament. And as the people of God, can I say on this July 4th weekend where we celebrate, and, and like all this, like this celebratory attitude, can I also say to the people of God that we need to learn how to lament before God? Name our losses call out our pain, and give it to the Lord. But he doesn't live there, right? He doesn't live there. He moves on. And guess what he does next? Verses 3 through 6 are this beautiful confession of trust in God despite the orientation, disorientation and the chaos. Verses three through six are a beautiful confession of trust in God in the midst of the disorientation and the chaos. Let's read it again. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and I sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. And I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. You see, what this is, these confessions, these poetic words, are, they demonstrate to us a faith that confesses the comfort of an unchanging God in the midst of change that is all around us. Right? I'm certain that you have had times in your life when there's disorientation and chaos and it feels like everything that you used to know, everything that you used to be certain of is crashing down. It just feels like an absolute utter loss of everything that I ever knew. And so in the midst of everything changing, what David does is he offers to us a language to engage with and confess a trust in a God who does not change. And that is a beautiful gift to us as we read Psalm 3. In fact, I want to look at these confessions more closely. He begins by saying, Yahweh is a shield around me. In verse 3. In fact, I want you to notice the comparison or the movement from verse 2 to verse 3. Verse 2 says, Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. In other words, verse 2 is naming how people feel about him. This is how people are feeling about me. And this is what people are saying. They're saying that God will never come to my side. They're saying that God will never rescue me. 
God will not get me out of this. I'm hopeless. That's what people are saying. And so verse 2 is a confession about here's what people are saying. But then he moves quickly to verse 3, which is a confession about what God thinks or the certainty of who God is. And this is a beautiful juxtaposition of this is, this is what people are saying. And I could, I could very easily hold all of my focus there. But instead, I'm going to confess this is what God is doing. This is the character of God. This is who God says that I am. And I think we would do well to, to turn our attention away from what people are saying and turn our attention toward what God is saying. Amen? And so there's this, this beautiful confession of trust based on the character of God, who God is, and who God says I am. And then he says, Yahweh is the one who lifts my head high. And then this, this lifting up of our head is a gesture and a sign of restoration over shame or depression. Have, when, have you ever been betrayed or, or when you have been betrayed or lied about, or lied to, guess what? It is very, very easy to believe that lie about yourself. Someone lies to you. Someone lies about you. It is so easy then to just slip into believing that lie about yourself. And if you believe a lie about who you are, that can very quickly lead to what in our culture we call depression. Now, I seriously doubt that David had any framework or scientific knowledge of, of what we would call uh, clinical depression or, or, or being sad or downtrodden. Like all of, the under, the, all of the science that we understand, David doesn't have a handle on. But what David does know is that there are times in our life where, where we are so down and, and the best picture that describes the, the attitude or posture of our heart and soul is that our head is facing downward to the ground. And David's confession about the character of God and the activity of God in his life is that this God, Yahweh, the one true God, is the one who lifts my head up. The one who enables me then to begin to see the truth. Remember, I'm naming the pain and the losses, and I probably don't have a very good uh, handle on the situation, but as God begins to work in my life and my head is lifted up, not only I begin to see the truth about who I am, about who God is, and I begin to be lifted out of the pit. And if you read the Old Testament, if you read the Psalms, if you read David, you recognize that one of the recurring themes is God is the one who lifts me out of the pit. You think David maybe struggled with depression? I'll bet he did. Of course he did. But here's what he's saying about the character of who God is. God is the one who lifts my head up. And then he says, Yahweh is present and listening. <laughs> In other words, I cry out to God and he hears me. It's this, this confession of the truth that, that when I'm speaking to God, he hears me. Have you ever heard someone say, I don't even feel like my prayers are reaching the ceiling? <laughs> 
that, that, that's a kind of cutesy way of saying, you know, I, I, that, I didn't feel like that prayer went anywhere. I don't feel like that prayer fell on any listening ears. And that, that could be right where we're at, right? I mean, that could be absolutely true to how we feel. But what David does is he confesses the truth of who God is. God is present and God is listening. For I cry out to Yahweh and he hears me. Do you think that he's saying that for God's benefit? Probably not. I'll bet he's saying that to remind himself of the truth. Did you know that when you pray, you can often remind yourself of the truth by way of confession? Confession means an agreement with God. And so when we confess, we can confess about the character of who God is. We can confess our sin and our brokenness before God. That's an agreement with God that we are in need of the Savior. That's why that even in the midst of victorious Christian living, there needs to be and has to be room for confession. We confess and agree with God that we are in consistent and perpetual need for the one who saves us. And so confession is simply an agreement with God. And so we confess that God is present and listening. And then he says, Yahweh sustains me. And I love this, I love this picture, this, this imagery that he says. He says, you don't want to know, he says, it's as though, he says, do you want to know how I know that God sustains me? Because I lie down and I sleep, and then I wake again. In other words, in this prayer, the sustaining power of God is an illusion to sleeping and then waking. And what is that but a picture of resurrection? The sustaining power of God is an illusion of resurrection in our life. In fact, if you trace the Old Testament, the Old Testament has resurrection language all over it. In fact, in the book of the Bible that teaches us how to lament called Lamentations, is the confession that your mercies are new every morning. That's resurrection language. It's, it's language of when all hope was lost, I recognize God that I will sleep and then I will wake and your mercies are new with the dawn of a new day. And so built into the daily rhythms of sleep and wakefulness is this pattern and this imagery of resurrection. And David uses that as a way of talking about the sustaining power of God. And so here, let me offer you this. Some of you are like, really good information. Where does that intersect with my life? Let me offer you this. (laughs) Because all theology is practical or it's no good, right? How about this? In the middle of your impossible struggle and chaos... Perhaps a really good prayer to pray is, God, would you give me the strength that I need for this day? Would you give me the strength that I need for this day? Because, God, I recognize and I celebrate your sustaining work in my life because I lie down and I sleep and then I wake again for the Lord sustains me. There is an allusion to resurrection. This idea that there is a pattern of 
newness in our lives. And so I think a really great prayer, if we're just utterly lost in chaos and have no idea what to do or how to fix it and we're, or, or how God is gonna fix it or if God is gonna fix it, like whatever level of uncertainty we may be facing, a really great prayer is, God, would you just give me the strength to face this day? And then he says, Yahweh, cast out fear. In the New Testament, the New Testament writers will eventually come to the conclusion in light of Christ that perfect love casts out all fear. But already in the life of David, we have this prayer that David is praying that that Yahweh is somehow capable of of casting out fear from our lives. In this, this beautiful picture of confession of trust and who God is. In fact, we might say it this way. We might say that verses three through six serve as a beautiful confession of the sovereign care of God. And guess what? All without supplication. Supplication is a fancy word for requests. In other words, by this point in the prayer, that's eight verses long, By the time that you get to the end of verse six, you have yet to come to a request. David has named the pain, embraced the pain. He has confessed the sovereign care of God before he ever moves to making a request before God. And and let me just say, I'm wondering how many times when we face disorientation in our lives that we never take the time to name the pain and, and maybe that's because it's difficult to name. Maybe that's because we think that to be a Christian is to ignore the pain, right? If we were told that faith is like pretending that everything is okay, then we probably don't feel all that comfortable bringing our pain to God. And so we may have been, well, we may have been told that to be a Christian is to ignore the pain. But, but we often don't take the time to, to, to name the pain and confess the care of God. In fact, we're so prone to jumping right into the requests, which are usually the, the request that is just that God would take the ailment away. And, and I certainly want to say there is nothing wrong with praying for difficulty to subside and go away. And certainly it takes the power of God often to bring that, that change about in our lives. But I love the, the spiritual health and maturity displayed in first confessing the sovereign care of God over our lives before ever moving to we we have this request or I have this request. In fact, I would submit to you this, that, that the habit of jumping right into requests and maybe praying only requests is actually a symptom. And it's a symptom of a fundamental misunderstanding of prayer. Uh, author and pastor Brian Zahn brilliantly states this. He says, the purpose of prayer is not to get to God to do what we think God ought to do. But the purpose of prayer is to be properly formed. Uh, in other words, there, there is space and there is room for calling out to God, for calling God to action, for asking and, and, and bringing our requests before God. There is certainly room for that. But if that's all that we do, then we have lost the formative power of prayer. 
And we've, we've forgotten that prayer is a formative exercise. And if we understand prayer as a formative exercise, that, that as we pray and as we confess these truths about God, that our hearts are being properly aligned with his kingdom, uh, that our desires are beginning to shift properly in the ways of what God would desire, uh, then, then God is forming us more and more into his likeness as we engage with him in prayer. Then we move to the fact of this is what I need or this is what I want or this is what I request. And so we've lost the formative power of, of prayer. Quick, quick side note, this is why in our corporate practice and also uh, something I try to do in my own private prayer life is to pray written prayers that confess the nature of who God is. And, and, and so often in my prayer time, I will begin with, with just an opening of confessing the character of God. And then I will pray, pray the, the famous prayer of confession, confessing my sins before God. But then I will immediately go to a confession of belief, which is the Apostles' Creed. And so I profess the character of who God is, I confess my sin before God, and then I confess my belief in who God is using the Apostles' Creed. And I have found that just, going, just doing that in, in a couple of minutes before I ever bring requests to, to God helps to form me and, and actually helps to uh, inform how I pray and how I request before God. And so I want us to, to grab a hold of this idea that the purpose of prayer is not primarily to get God to do what we think God ought to do, but the purpose of prayer is to be properly formed. And so I love the spiritual maturity indicated in this, this guide for prayer in times of disorientation. But David does eventually make a request, and here it is. Here's David's request. Arise, Lord, deliver me. Deliver me by striking my enemies in the jaw and breaking their teeth. <laughs> okay, and you're like, David fell off the rails there. <laughs> Everything was super spiritual and great until then, right? Uh, now, keep in mind that his enemies are the people in his kingdom that have come to love his own son who is trying to kill him and heart in order uh, that his son might take on the throne. So, there is some symmetry going here. These are poems, and so you find all sorts of uh, symmetrical elements. But here's the symmetry. Uh, notice in the beginning when he's naming his pain, he says, my enemies have raised up against me. And so he prays a, a symmetrical prayer now that God would rise up against my enemies. And so there's some symmetry there. And we also need to understand that in David's world and in David's time, gods showed their presence in the world through, their, through the violent overthrow of enemies. This was, this was in the ancient world how they understood the role of the gods. Gods made their presence known in the world by violent overthrow of enemies. This is part of the reason why when you read the Old Testament, it just seems like a totally foreign world, right? It's this nation came up against this nation, but this God prevailed. Whoa, what? God did what? Did who? What? Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the people carry out the violence and then give, uh, give the credit to God, to their God, whoever that God might be, because that's how the presence and activity of God's was understood in the ancient world. And so when David prays this prayer, he is likely praying it in a very literal sense. 
He is praying, Yahweh, God of Israel, deliver me from my enemies by busting them in the jaw and breaking their teeth, amen. Which is, if you don't know, amen means so be it. (laughs) And so he's praying a very violent prayer. God, deliver me by rising up violently against my enemies and crushing them. However, we now recognize that Christ is the full revelation of who God is. God is not, Christ is not part of the revelation of God. Christ is not uh, a revelation of God alongside many others. Uh, There's lots of evidence in the New Testament that says Christ is the absolute full revelation of God. Christ embodies the fullness of who God is. And we also recognize that Christ embodies his own message of nonviolent enemy love by dying to save his enemies from their sin with forgiveness on his lips instead of killing his enemies and rising up against them. And so the question becomes, knowing what we know now about the character of God because of Christ, are we allowed to pray similar prayers to what David prayed? And that's a good question that will likely deserve wrestling with the rest of our lives. But let me offer some thoughts. I contend that while these prayers are maybe far less common because of who Christ is, I think that we can pray these prayers, these imprecatory prayers, because of this. In giving our anger to God, we are helping ourselves to deal with the anger while appealing our case to a higher court that is God's court. And so David, in praying this prayer, is essentially saying, I am not going to gather up my own army with whomever might be on my side and cause a revolt against my own son right now, but rather I'm going to give this to God. Now, as you read the Old Testament story, you realize it doesn't exactly play out perfectly like that. (laughs) All the time, right? Because they understood a world in which God was present through violent overthrow of enemies. But now we have the perspective of Christ. So, giving our anger to God, giving our anger toward our enemies to God, helps release us from the posture of anger, thus making us free to act in loving ways toward our enemies. So what I want to say is this. If praying an angry prayer to God against your enemies helps you act in loving ways toward your enemies as Jesus calls us to, then pray angry. If your anger, angry prayers toward your enemies only fuels the fire of your anger and makes you more motivated to act in, way, in, in non-loving ways toward your enemies, it's time to pray that God's favor would fall on your enemies. Does this make sense? So if you can give God your anger, be released then to love your enemies as Christ has called us to do, do that. But if praying imprecatory prayers against our enemies only fuels your heart of anger, then it is time to lift up your enemies in prayer and follow the example of Jesus. Because Jesus is not just one revelation alongside many others of who God is. Jesus is the full revelation of the character of of God. And Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies, 
to love those who persecute us and to have nonviolent enemy love. Okay. And then let me close with this. Verse 8 says, From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. When we were reading this, did that seem a little bit out of place? It's like David is giving a benediction at the end of his prayer for, this, for like the gathered community. And you're like, wait a second, what? I thought you were like in the midst of fleeing from your son Absalom, and now you're like praying this benediction over the community? This is rather strange. And so while it may seem like a small thing, what he actually does is he prays this prayer in a communal sense. And so praying this one line connects his life to the life of the community because he realizes that he is part of a whole. In other words, this realization, has, this realization of being part of a whole has come much easier for David than it does for us because he, David wasn't raised with like a rugged individualism uh, in the same way that we are. You and I are raised with rugged individualism to always uh, stick out, be your own person, be your own man, right? Like all of these things. But as the people of God, we do really well to realize that our lives are intricately linked together. Your life is always caught up in someone else's life. You are part of a whole And so while praying in the midst of his own disorientation, in the midst of his own chaos, he asks God's blessing on all of his people, not just himself. He prays, God, deliver me (laughs) by doing this against my enemies. But then he says, but may your favor be on all people. May your blessing be on all people. And I think that we need to get out of this, this mindset that is just... It's just me and God. And and really get into a mindset of it's us and God. (laughs) It's God working in all of us together. Our lives are so intricately linked in community that that whatever God is is doing in my life is is going to have an impact in some way in your life. That the members of of your life group, that when you get together and and they say, God is working in me in this particular way that has an impact, regardless of how small, it has an impact on my own life. And what we often see is that God begins to do something over here in this person. And we all kind of like, well, that's kind of weird. But then God begins to do something similar in my own life. And we say, wow, I can resonate with that now. Or, or, like, or this person goes through this kind of pain and we have no idea, but then someone else in the community goes through that kind of pain and that person connects with that person and our lives are intricately linked through our joys and through our pains. And so I love this prayer that at the end of, 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 of naming his pain before God, of confessing the sovereign care of God, of bringing a, a supplication to God, he then says, God, may your blessing be on all of your people. Because what is going on in my life and what you're doing in my life and my confessions of your character have an impact on the whole. And man, how often we believe the lie that I, it's just, just me and God, this, my, my, just this private enterprise, this private spiritual enterprise that simply is not true. Our lives are intricately linked in community. And this is true for our community, this this community, Emmaus Road. This is true for your particular life group, but this is true on a much broader scale too. 
our lives are, are, are linked in a way that I think we, in our individualistic culture, we just don't even have the lens to be able to see. And so I, I think it's a really good habit to just in our prayers begin to, to see and to recognize this communal aspect. Uh, this, by the way, is, is why I think that any time that you pray the Lord's Prayer, maybe you, I hope that you pray the Lord's Prayer in your own uh, private faith practices, um, but I hope you pray it in the plural. Because praying it in the plural, even when you're just by yourself, in some small way is a recognition that you are connected to a larger body of believers. And so you, in, the, in the privacy of your own home, praying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Pray it in the plural. Because by doing so, you're recognizing that your life is caught up in the lives of other people. And so I offer to us today this, out of Psalm chapter 3, a framework for praying in times of disorientation. Lament and name the pain. Confess the sovereign care of God. And if you have words to do that, great. If you don't, borrow them from David. That's okay. If you don't, borrow them from other historic prayers. That's a wonderful way of teaching you a language of how to confess the sovereign care of God. Give God your anger and your petitions. And then acknowledge your connectedness to the body of Christ and the people of God. I told you at the beginning, I'm, I don't usually give you just outlined frameworks like that, but as I was studying Psalm 3, I couldn't help but think that that's what God wanted me to do, is to, in some small way, teach us out of Psalm 3 how to engage with God in times of, of disorientation and chaos. And I don't know. I, I hope that that falls on someone's heart and really resonates. Um, I hope I don't have... I hope God didn't have me say that to a whole community of people that are like, things are going great right now. <laughs> but certainly, I do hope that if you are in a season of orientation or new orientation, things are going well, um, that this will help you when chaos comes to know how to engage with God in a meaningful way.